Hi, this is Pat Blythe, and welcome to Love the Music. These are the Pandemic Interviews, Conversations in a Changing Time. I had the pleasure of interviewing Hamilton musician Tom Wilson in February of this year. Tom is one of the greatest storytellers out there today. So rather than leave too much on the cutting room floor, I've decided to make this a two-part conversation. Today you'll hear part one, featuring two songs, from one of Tom's first bands, Junk House. Next week, on July 20th, Part two will be released with a special recording of a song he wrote in 2015. I really hope you enjoy listening to Tom's stories as much as I enjoyed talking with him. I'm here with Tom Wilson, singer, songwriter, best-selling author, storyteller, visual artist, and four-time Juno Award winner. Five. The most recent in 2020. Is that right? Four times? Yeah, five now. Believe it or not, five. Yeah, I snuck one Ooh. in there somehow. I don't. I don't know how I did it, but they congratulations! Sent me one for, uh, they sent me one for uh, Colin James' uh, blues album that he uh, oh, won wow. a Juno Award for two years ago. Yeah. Oh wow! Okay, and the latest one was twenty twenty for Mohawk. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So an extremely busy man is taking us seven months to get to this interview now to coordinate the calendars. So I've had the pleasure of photographing and writing about Tom for almost six years, going back to the first time I saw you at the CNE oh. in 2015. At the, it was 2015. at the band show. Yes, at the yeah. band show. That was, yeah, almost mm-hmm. six years ago. So, and I photographed him all over Southwestern Ontario at concerts, benefits, festivals, and book signings. Welcome to the pandemic interviews, hey. conversations in a changing time. And Terrific. thank nice you. To be here. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time. So what did you expect to be doing this past year in 2020 and leading into 2021? Well, except for uh, uh, racing off to airports and getting on tour buses and in vans and living in hotels, um, I'm doing exactly what I would have been doing anyways, which is... Uh, which is uh, working every day to uh, wake up every day uh, to try and create something that wasn't there uh, yesterday. And that's that's kind of my official job title, uh, I'd have to say. Uh, so as far as um, the drudgery of work and touring, which, by the way, I still enjoy to a certain extent, but it, I've been doing it for 47 years. So, you know, um, a thrill's a thrill for a while. And then, uh, and then you just have to find other things that work for you. I'm going to continue speaking. Since you asked one question, I'll give you a 40-minute answer. The, um, the idea of uh, getting a little older and traveling is just not as attractive uh, anymore. I still love the thrill of uh, being in front of an audience and uh, uh, putting things out into the air that resonate with people. That that's great, but um, I feel that uh, I, I, I I'm happy with more of an insulated life uh, these days. Uh, that that would be one way to put it. So, what's keeping you busy? What are you working on these days? I'm writing a second book. Uh, we got a play that's going into production, a TV show uh, that is being. Uh, sold right now. Resolution Films has picked up this idea for a TV show that we hope to be writing soon uh, with uh, Mike Short from Hamilton. 
Mike Short is uh, the guy that brought home all the Emmys last year for Schitt's Creek. And his brother, uh, of course, is Martin Short. They're all Hamilton guys, right? It's amazing when you get Hamilton guys together um, how there's a common thread that runs through our lives. And so just as far as finding someone to work with or, or just happening across somebody to work with, I went for breakfast with Mike Short. He's 10 years older than me. And uh, we started talking a little bit about Hamilton. We had never met. I knew that he was uh, he, he was a head writer uh, at Schitt's Creek. And I uh, also worked with his brother, I guess, for years. And I still haven't looked up his resume to this day. So I don't really know all the th- wonderful things he's done. But uh, the reason why it was such an easy fit is because we are Hamilton guys. And when you come from a town from Hamilton or like you from London... There's touchstones, you know, there's people that you know that doesn't matter if you are 10 or 15 or 20 years difference in age, you still have, uh, there's still people and situations and landmarks that you both relate to. And if you don't have those, then the same characters that you knew, the same characters that he might have known 10 years before me, show up again somehow, you know, in a different body and different clothes. But they're the same kind of rounders that you always knew. So we, we immediately started. We hit it off right away. Anyways, uh, we're gonna, that, that's going down into the future. I have uh, three different albums that I'm writing for right now. Okay. I'm working with uh, Sony ATV Music on a, some music for TV. And I started a new indigenous project with Isque. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we've got a record deal. I signed a record deal in the middle of a pandemic, which I don't know. I didn't even try to do that. I, wow. I, I, I said to, I was talking to Colin Linden, my friend in Nashville, a member of Blackie and the Rodeo Kings. And I said, remember when we were kids? Because we've known each other since we were 16 years old. I said, remember how when we were 16, we were just dying to get a record deal. And we couldn't get a record deal. Nobody liked us. And everybody had didn't want anything to do with us. And I said, and now it's just like uh, magically... I just kind of tripped and fell into this uh, record deal with Red Music Rising, okay. which is a new in- indigenous record label. So Isque and I are, are, are working on that project. And also Blackie and the Rodeo Kings. Uh, we just got our option picked up by Warner Brothers, Warner Music. And so we're going to be making a record for them, geez, as soon as we can, which I don't know when that's going to be. I have talked a whole lot. I could have been more concise there will be editing, won't there? Yes, there will be editing. Fuck, you're, yes. you're, you're talking to the editor. Oh, good. <laughs> but that's that's fine. That, this is too, so, that was just too much no, information. No. And you know what? It's funny because when people ask me, you know, what are you up to? It's I, I tell them and I can just watch all the life you know, fall away from their faces and the color drain from their from their complexions as they kind of, you know, just fall into rigor mortis as I'm, as I'm talking to them. Um, the point of all this, by the way, is that if you decide that, uh, you know, you're going to attempt to be an artist in this life, you know, it's not about finding the right hat, you know, or the groovy place on Queen Street West to hang out, you know. Being an artist doesn't come with, uh, shouldn't come with any preconceptions. The idea of being an artist should not influence uh, how you create at all. Artists, like I say, just wake up and try to create something that wasn't there the day before. And if you don't have that burning desire to do that, 
then you actually shouldn't be doing it because you're wasting your time. And as a result, you're going to be wasting the time of anybody that's exposed to what you've created. So that's why nothing has changed for me since the pandemic. Okay, and that's interesting. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to let you take over the conversation for a while. And I'm going to try and give you simpler answers. Fuck. Your answer can be as long or as short as you want it to be. Okay. Just go with it. I am not in any... I'm not here to cut anybody off. Okay, great. Okay, so you are writing, obviously, music now. So one of the questions I have is, is the pandemic or isolation directly affecting any of, is it going into your writing? Is it affecting it in any way? Just now. Only in the last two weeks. And I've been feeling, uh, two and a half weeks, uh, uh, actually, because I have been feeling um, that weight that we're all that most of people are feeling from the pandemic you know the uh the lack of interaction i mean i don't really like people anyways i mean i'm nice i'm 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 generous uh i try to do good things for the world around me but i'm okay not uh not hanging out with people but i'm feeling i, I like to have the option to be able to do that and so i'm missing that and uh my wife who's a teacher is is feeling a lot of anxiety having to go back to school being forced to go back to to school you know and children being forced to go back to school it's it's kind of silly but this is going to be a weight that we're going to be carrying with us for a long time and this is also the fallout of of this situation the residue that is on us is going to be it's going to be stuck to us for a long time this wow. is going to be changing how the world um communicates i believe it's going to be changing how artists think about uh uh creating uh for audit for for people you know we uh we're going to see the switch and it's going to be over the next couple of years that we're actually going to notice that oh my God, things have changed. I mean, we are all just frogs in the saucepan, right? You know, as the heat turns up, we're still sitting there boiling to death. And I think that's uh, that's going to be the effect that's, gonna, that's going to be prominent throughout our society coming up. How are you coping personally with it then? Well, I've been doing, you know, uh, yeah. working. I paint. I mean, I have, a, I have two yeah. art exhibits that uh, I need to get into shape right now. And I paint uh, has been my survival, you know? I mean, without uh, going out and and doing shows, I mean, let's just say that I've lost a quarter million dollars this year from uh, touring, right? From Because it was Blackie and the Rodeo King's big 25th anniversary. Mm -hmm. We were to be in England and Denmark, and I was supposed to be in Ireland, Scotland, playing San Francisco, playing Nashville, playing all of Canada. It was a big tour year. And uh, we did five shows, and I think the last show was at the Danforth Music Hall here in Toronto, and that was kind of like warming up. Okay, here comes, here comes, you know, the next 12 months, we're going to be on the road, we're going to be at festivals, we're going to be kicking ass, we got to do this because it's going to be great, we're old men. But we're going to rise ourselves up and we're going to go after this. And, uh, and sure enough, uh, the pandemic hit and everything shut down, so all those shows, all that touring went away. I immediately went to my art studio, which is at the Cotton Factory in an old industrial part of Hamilton, and started painting. And I also found that people started buying art. That's about it, you know what I mean? And people bought, the, for me, people bought a lot of my art this year. So it kind of subsidized uh, uh, 
economically, uh, I was subsidized by my art, so I didn't really have to worry about going out and touring because I was actually making more money than I would have been out on the road, you know? Very cathartic. It is. It truly is. Well, the art is um, about me, about about my identity, about my my journey that I'm on right now. Right. To uh, to understand where I'm from, to uh, feel the uh, generations, the uh, ancestors. Okay, uh, so why don't you expand a little bit on that journey because it stems from your discovery. Yeah. You were actually adopted and continued on to Beautiful Scars. So why don't yeah, you take a well, minute and tell everybody what that's about. Before we hear Tom's answer, we're going to take a short musical break. Junkhouse was a Hamilton band formed in 1989 by Tom Wilson, Dan Atchin, Russ Wilson, who's no relation to Tom, and Ray Ferrugia. The song Shine was the band's biggest hit in the 1990s. According to Tom, the song was inspired by close friends in Hamilton, whose parents had both died of cancer within months of each other. To quote Tom, That was the seed that through them dying we all have to learn to revive ourselves and learn how to shine in our own way. That while we're here, we have to inspire and engage and create possibilities for other people. Towers listening to them singing in the park. While the clocks are tightening, all the radios are blowing in the dark. The mothers lie down in the daytime. Dream about Hollywood I know that they'd get there If they could It's just a matter of time Before we get to shine It's not a question Go. 
Welcome back to the Pandemic Interviews, Conversations in a Changing Time. The song you just heard was Shine by the band Junkhouse from their album Fuzz, released in 1997. You're listening to a conversation I had with Tom Wilson in February 2021. Well, there's a human element to this story that's very strong. What I've learned, and since we're talking a little bit about art here, is that uh, for for 53 years before uh, I was figuring out what I wanted to write about and what I wanted to paint and, uh, uh, you know, what I wanted to lay out artistically. And suddenly this discovery uh, seven years ago by a complete stranger who told me that I was adopted. I found out that I was actually raised by my great aunt and uncle. I found out that uh, I grew up an only child, and I've met six of my brothers and sisters. The woman who uh, has acted as my cousin my entire life, Cousin Janie, she's always been around, always kind of been on the outside perimeter of my life, but always there. My cousin Janie, I was driving her home from one of my grandson's birthday parties. And just to be clear, Cousin Janie, is like the matriarch of our family. She sits at the head of the table for Christmas and, and Thanksgiving and all the birthdays, and it's really not a family event without her there. And I was driving her home after one of my grandson's birthday parties, and I said, Janie, you know what? I just found out a couple weeks ago that mom and dad weren't really my mom and dad. And uh, I know that you were close with them, and I'm hoping that maybe you'd be able to uh, tell me something. If you remember anything... You know, let me know, because I'm trying to piece this together. And she turned to me and said, Tom, I'm sorry, I don't know how to tell you this. I hope you forgive me, but I'm your mother. Janie is a Mohawk from Ganawage. Wow, that My father just... was a Mohawk from Ganawage, just outside, 20 minutes outside Montreal. And uh, I grew up thinking that I was a big, puffy, sweaty Irish guy, and it turns out that I'm a Mohawk. Now, the adoption issue, the adoption subject runs through families, runs through, you know, comes bursting out of closets and homes all over the world. The family secret. So there is that tie-in that when I talk about this, there's always somebody in the theater or in the venue that talks to me after, maybe two or three, maybe five people. I've had like bikers come to me and theater lobbies in Winnipeg and say, hey, man, your story's just like my story. Or I have people come up and say, you know, my father grew up thinking that he had a sister, but his sister, older sister, turned out to be his mother. So these stories, this is an, this is an important subject to talk about, an important subject that is inspiring, creatively inspiring for me. And then... There's the indigenous side of things. That's huge. Which is, is massive. It's, it's a huge issue that is not as big as it should be. It's a huge issue that, um, uh, that uh, this country in particular would like to uh, still forget about. Um, I think we live in the greatest country in the world. I think this country has to have a good look at itself in the mirror and understand who we are as a country. I don't believe that um, indigenous issues are going to be 
rectified in my lifetime. How do you rectify the extinguishing of an entire culture, you know? So um, getting back to what I was originally talking about is my art has taken on this intent that it didn't have before. Now my job is to put the Mohawk culture into the light where it belongs because I believe that we are not going to get there by pointing fingers at each other and screaming at each other and arguing on Twitter and social media, you know, that we are going to come to it through art, through the understanding of the great writers and great indigenous artists, you know, from Morso to Tanya Talaga. The stories are being told and that's the way for me to be able to pass a book over to you and say, you know what? This book is not going to yell at you. This book is going to nurture a subject that you need to know about, you know, or the beauty of Morisot's colors, you know, are something that are undeniable. Come, come over here. Understand the story. Understand where these colors are coming from and where these words are coming from. So now as an artist, uh, I don't even consider myself an artist, but as an artist, that is as my job is to introduce every day to introduce uh, my identity or my struggle to find my identity um, to the world, to anybody that'll listen. And some days... Some days a lot of people listen, and some days nobody listens. But that's really, you know, when you're working to be an artist, uh, that's what you better come to understand. I think it's the story of many. It is. It's 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 the story. It's, a, it's, it's, it's the job. Story. You know. Totally different question. Another long answer. <laughs> we're we're good with long answers. Okay. How do you feel about virtual collaborations? Whether it's creating, writing, or performing with other artists, you're seeing a lot of these. You're seeing a lot of people tr trying to create virtually and st actually starting to struggle with it without being in the same room. Yeah, well, it's a pain in the ass, right? Um, but I think the desire to, uh, to create and collaborate uh, should overshadow the struggle with the technology. You know, I've never been a fan of technology. You know, we got this, this cool guy behind the board running this show, recording us. Um, I never bothered learning Pro Tools. I never bothered learning studio stuff because I always figured there's guys like this that could really kick ass at it, right? And also I found that uh, uh, technology uh, got in the way of uh, the creative process for me. I, I managed to be able to use uh, technology to uh, enhance or to inspire me at different times, but I never relied on it to do the work for me that uh, the, that that my own attempt to be an artist uh, was meant to be. Um, so Zoom meetings, I just had one in, uh, I had one with Matt Anderson, who was in uh, Nova Scotia. That was two days ago. Right. And um, we're pals. So that worked out well. We just basically hung out. We wrote a song. Uh, I work with Colin Linden regularly in Nashville, uh, writing songs. Uh, but both of us, because we've known each other all our lives, it's very comfortable. And we both uh, are not going to sit on Zoom for hours trying to hammer out an idea. We both have enough confidence in one another that we can work for 20 minutes and say, okay, I'm taking this away. I'm going to work on this. I'm going to send you what I have. Yep. And then we work that way. So I think that the trust in yourself as a, a creator and your belief in the other person that you're working with 
definitely can you can overcome the struggles of the Zoom. Also, you know what? A lot like that's a good question, by the way. But it and I can answer in a lot of ways is that our egos don't allow us to do a lot of things. So if we can actually, you know, drop that bullshit, we can get a lot more done. I like that answer. Live performance. Yeah. Key to the development of so many artists, and it really doesn't matter whether you've been doing it for six months, six years, or 60 years. So what do you think uh, is going to happen with the live music scene going forward in the future when we come out of, fingers crossed, this pandemic situation? And there's a, there's a, there's a sort of a part eight of that question is, do you think there's going to be more or less focus on social media since most of us seem to be glued to our screens? Yeah. Um, I think we're going to get sick of uh, being glued to our screens. We're going to be sick of, you know, I mean, you mentioned the Zoom. I told, I, I actually gave people some good advice here about how to, how to get beyond the anxieties and problems of working on a Zoom writing session, you know. Uh, they're simple. Uh, just keep in mind that you're actually not that important. You're important to the universe, but you're not that important that you can't overcome a Zoom conference. You know what I mean? Um, I don't know. Live music, maybe there'll be a lot more musicians that'll find other things to do and, and pave the way for uh, other musicians who are who are serious about what they're doing to be able to uh, shine through. How's that? Well, do you think 2020 is going to be a career killer? For especially for those who aren't as well established. Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to sound rude, but if you're not that well established, what's your career anyway? You know what I mean. Not to be. I'm not trying to be rude because I mean I'm I'm a guy that nobody knows. I managed to survive as an artist. Uh, I'm not. I'm not. That, I'm not Jim Cuddy. You know. Actually, I don't have his dimples, and I can't smile like can. him. And so Good. none of us can. <laughs> so um, uh, I I don't know. You know, people will go away. I, I mean, my I, I lecture in universities and colleges about this stuff. And, and I do start off, I said earlier, if you don't have a burning desire to do this, do not. Just stop. Just don't do it. So um, maybe this is going to weed out a lot of the wannabes um, or, uh, you know, maybe people, to be a little more gentle about this, maybe uh, people will walk away from this for a little while and come back to it as a stronger with stronger intent to create i had a question on here about and i've taken it off about what would happen there's been thousands of musicians out there crowding the bars four or five bands a night in the clubs which is where i do a lot of my shooting and by the time the last one plays i've forgotten about the first one yeah and some of them are excellent some of them i don't know if they're doing it for shits and giggles so is this going to, and what the way I phrased it was, call the herd? Yeah. Are we gonna, is the cream going to rise to the top and hey, the other ones so are you and I are on the same page. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree yeah. with that too. I, there was, a, my, my son used to be in a band called Harlem Pepper. They used to play the Cameron House, right? I, I, the Cameron House was around hell. Just, uh, you know, when I, when I walked on the Queen Street in the late 70s, the Cameron House was there, the Horseshoe yep. was there, you know. Punk rock was, uh, Queen Street didn't look like it did, didn't have any you know, flagship uh, Les Chateau stores or anything like that. It was pretty rough, little dirty little street. But um, they were playing for the, they passed a, 
basket around or a bucket around and people put money in it. And it's like... Tip jars, yeah. Yeah, that's total bullshit, man. Yes. You know what? I was 16 years old and I was playing some coffee house up on Avenue Road. I mean, 1975, 76. And I said, great. Well, how do I get paid? And they gave me a basket. And at 16 years old, I thought, this is what kind of shit is this? You know what I mean? I got asked to do by promoters and friends. They said, will you do a Facebook Live concert for us? I said, well, that sounds kind of interesting, you know. Maybe I will try that. Um, and then it got to, I said, well, um, what am I getting paid for this? Oh, well, we're going to put a, a tip jar up in the corner of the Facebook page, and uh, and that's how you're going to get paid. And it's like, fuck that, man. You know, I'm 61 years old. It's like uh, I'm supporting, uh, I'm, I'm support. you know, I, I got a lot of people to take care of here. Uh, got my mom set up in a condo and uh, I'm helping out my daughter or my son. I got grandkids. You, you know, and your wife. Uh, ain't, uh, yeah, well, well, she's fine. She's a teacher. She's, I got a dental plan now. So, you know, I mean, I'm okay. And uh, the tip jar thing, um, uh, I didn't like it when I was 16. I don't like it when I'm 61. From their debut album, Strays, released in 1993, here's the song, Out of My Head, a love song, Junkhouse style.
Welcome back to the Pandemic Interviews, Conversations in a Changing Time. The song you just heard was Out of My Head by the band Junkhouse from their first album, Strays, released in 1993. You're listening to a conversation I had with Tom Wilson in February 2021. I'm the photographer and I don't like it. I find it, As a- I find it embarrassing for the band that they have struggled to bring all of their equipment in, set it up, entertain you for whether it's one, two or three sets, tear it down and you have to pass a tip jar because I, when I moved to Toronto in 79, this Mm -hmm. is not my interview, this is yours, but um, I started working at different booking agencies and I had my own little uh, publicity company going at the same time. And I mean, I was 22 when I moved here and um the booking agencies, I mean, you had bookers where the agents would go into the club. They would make sure that the guy was member of the union. And I had this discussion with, with John and, and Cindy at one point. Um, made sure that the band was paid, that they were paid scale, that, you know, they had uh, their, their wages went into their pension plan. And these bands were making really good money. Yeah. Like really good money. Three nights, maybe at the Gasworks, Piccadilly too. Yeah. That's what I was used to. I got out of the music business for a, quite a number of years after I got married and and back into it again. And I couldn't understand what the tip jar was about because that's not the world I came it's from. It's not the world the I 70s. came from either. I'm going to tell you. It's terrible. That, that this, we're talking about 1981 or 82. Yeah, and I'm talking 78, 79. Right. So just, I mean, I was, yeah. I was working since 76, right? But yeah. it, I'm going to tell you in 81... I was playing the Prince George Hotel in Kingston. Now, this is back, we're talking about back in the day when you could do three, four, five, yep. six nights, right? That's what we did. You know, we did okay. six nights sometimes in a venue between strippers or, uh, you know, between tractors. It didn't matter where we were. And, but I was at the Prince George. It was a good gig. The waitresses were really cute, and they gave you rooms upstairs. It was a really nice spot, and they paid you well. And X-Ray McRae who you probably know, X-Ray, who's, uh, you know, been partners with uh, Dan Aykroyd over the years on different venues, said, we're opening the horseshoe. We love your band. We want you to come and play there. We had a great discussion. I said, well, I used to love the horseshoe. I said, my mom, my friends used to get Stompin' Tom Connors, the horseshoe, country horseshoe, punk rock horseshoe, the last pogo, teenage head, you know, horseshoe. Yeah, yeah man, horseshoe, that sounds great. I said, well, you know, uh, what are we getting paid? He said, oh, you play for the door. And I said, forget it. I'm not going to do it. So as a result, you know, I never played in Toronto uh, unless I was getting paid, you know. So those gigs were very rare in the in the early 80s. That's when it started to turn, isn't it? The early yeah. 80s is when all of a sudden um, uh, music, uh, that, that was kind of the beginning. That was before digitizing music too but you could see the trend was starting to minimalize the importance of music so if you're not and i also you know i mean back then we were charging like five to ten bucks to get in and you're still not charging anymore today and you're fast forwarding over 30 years I, that's true and we're still at five or ten i am to get in. I, I i am now this is there's yeah. a couple things here there's a couple important elements that you know strumming the guitar and writing the song in your bedroom is one thing but uh, do business is, is another people have come to me over the years well, you know, I just made I just made these recordings. I made this record. I need to find a manager. No, well, actually, you don't need to find a manager. You need to find out how how your career works, if it works at all. You need to be able to find out where your audiences are, and you have to go after them. Uh, 1970s, late 70s, early 80s. I'd say I'm going to make sure your club is full. 
put that money down on the contract and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to fill your club up and we would put up posters and we'd make phone calls and we'd fill the club and we'd get back there. Now, flat, uh, fast forward to 2012, 13, Blackie and the Rodeo Kings put out Kings and Queens. It is the cornerstone album at the time of our career we're doing duets with emmy lou harris and roseanne cash and patty skyalfa bruce springsteen's wife uh, lucinda williams uh, pam tillis all these wonderful wonderful female artists and i asked uh where where our toronto play was going to be and they respectfully told me you're going to be doing five nights at hughes room which was a great listening venue and one that I love, loved. And I said, that's, that's not, that's not going to work out at all. I said, this is, this is like our cornerstone record. We've been together now for, you know, at that point, four and then 10, 14, 15 years. I said, we got to go do Massey Hall. And they said, well, it's too early to do Massey Hall. And after 15 years being in a band, I figured, you know, that wasn't the way to be thinking. So I went and had a, a meeting with Riley O'Connor, who was the head of Live Nation. I said, uh, we want to do Massey Hall. Here's why we want to do it. This is the album that we've made. We're, as a band, this is where we should be. And he said, well, how many people do you can you put into a hall in Toronto? I said, I think are about 800. He goes, well, Massey Hall is like 25, 2,600 people. How are you going to do that? I said, well, we're going to shut down the market. We're not going to play Ontario for oh, about a year. I said, and then we're going to go to every one of the promoters outside of the city in Peterborough and Aurelia and London, uh, Brantford, Hamilton, Oshawa, Kingston. We're going to go to those promoters and we're going to sell tickets through bus trips. We're going to give them the job of promoting the Massey Hall show, filling up the buses, bringing them to Toronto. It was a huge job. We sold out Massey Hall. And then we did Massey Hall again, and we sold it out again without that element. So what I'm saying overall is I haven't changed my way of doing business, or I haven't changed, my desire hasn't subsided since I was 18 years old. I'm 61, like I say, and when the next Blackie tour comes, I'm going to be as passionate about getting people into the seats as I was then. You have to do business. That's it. That's why Blackie disappeared. Blackie and the Rotary Kings disappeared that year. I couldn't find any gigs. Now I know why. None. <laughs> <laughs> nice job. Okay, we all joke about what-if scenarios mm-hmm. and what we should be doing for just in case. We plan, and then we don't plan, and then we keep putting it off. Do you think anybody, and this is a really wild card question, do you think any of us could have possibly been prepared for something like this? No. No, we couldn't be prepared for this. Okay. You know, I wasn't prepared for this. But obviously, uh, as I said, up until two and a half weeks ago, when I started to feel a little blue, just like the rest of the world, uh, other than that, it didn't change how I woke up in the morning and what I did. Um, and I knock wood because I've sat with, by the way, I've, I've created paintings that have sat on my walls for years and have not sold but somehow this year, like I say, I did two really big commissions and uh, I had one art exhibit in a public gallery and every week I'm, I'm selling, I'm selling art, right? It's just, it's just the way it goes. So I'm, I'm very, very fortunate. You, I can't express to you how 
uh, grateful I am and how fortunate I feel because I know what it's like to be not making money. The only way I prepared, now I used to be a drug dealer back in about years ago, right? So I always knew where to hide cash in the house and I always knew to keep cash around because uh, anything could happen, right? And um, and I've, I've held on to cash my entire life and I always thought, well, I've got gold, like actually gold stashed. I've got cash stashed in different places, not at my house. And, and uh, I always thought, well, you know what? I'm a, I'm a musician and a lot of my income relies on being on the road and I'm getting older. You know what? I could end up with a fucking tumor in my brain. I could end up with a bum knee. My arm could go. Things could just stop. So I got to have something to fall back on. And it wasn't until about a month into COVID that I realized, oh my God, this is it. This is what I've been this is what I've been putting this money away for all this time. You know, I got money here that I can survive. I can actually survive, you know, a pretty big storm here. On that side of things, I was kind of ready for COVID. Um, but professionally? Professionally? Uh, the only thing I lost was, uh, was the live, was the live mm-hmm. element, which as I mentioned, and I shouldn't have mentioned that really, that number though, because it's kind of given away how much money was coming through the door because that's just my portion that I lost this year from Blackie and the Rodeo Kings. And, um, and that's, that's a big hit, you know, I'm taking yeah. a big hit, but you know what, if it's not there, why bother thinking about it? fuck it man you know it's like i I can't be be being an artist being a photographer having a studio is not about uh going by the rules of the rest of the world that's the big problem that people have about i'm going to be an artist well you should never claim that you know what i mean tell me why are you saying you're going to be an artist because you have seen a picture or you have read Hemingway's Portable Feast, or there's something that you're relating to that is kind of fancy and kind of romantic and a little bit dark that you want to be a part of. And that's nothing to do with, that's no reason to want to be an artist, you know? No, it's not. Do you think maybe we've learned our lesson? Uh, From COVID? From COVID. And in regards to uh, maybe it's time to sort of sit back and, and plan a little bit more and more on a professional level, um, have songs in the bag or chart things out. I don't think we'll ever lose our, we're never going to, we're never going to learn our lesson on any level, uh, whether uh, you are in the, uh, on, on the evil side of the coin, which is in the, in, in politics or corporations or or churches you know governments they don't learn their lessons artists are driven are driven by something that has nothing to do with uh with pandemics or uh the real world do you think it's given them a chance to maybe not necessarily refocus but step outside the box maybe experiment more take some time to reflect change direction okay well i can only speak for myself and I can tell you that, you know that little story I told you about selling tickets to Massey Hall? Yep. I don't have to do that right now. You know, I didn't have to worry about the Canadian tour. I didn't have to worry about Massey Hall this year. <laughs> I mean, the Danforth I worried about. Up until the Danforth Theater and, and the other shows we did around that, I, I was on the case. I was in there selling tickets. I was in there promoting the shows. I was working with Live Nation on that. I was doing my thing. And that takes up a, a lot of time and energy. Doing business takes up a lot of time and energy where you could be, you know, writing the song that 
puts all the fish back in the ocean and seals up the ozone layer, you know? So you need time as an artist to be able to do that. That's where, for me, you know, the fallback of the old habit of stash and cash, you know, uh, came in handy. For me, it cleared the way. It cleared the way that I didn't have to be a businessman anymore, and I didn't have to get on the phone and do do the emails and do all the things that it took to, you know, help put Blackie and the Rodeo Kings on the road or worry about my next gig. Isn't it great? This is the first January that's ever come along that I haven't had to worry about what my year is going to look like because that's what happened. Uh, that's what happened to me for uh, 47 years is I have run as fast as I can to the finish line being Christmas time. Uh, gig and gig and gig and where's the next gig? Got a gig, got September book, got October booked, you know, got December, part of December book. And then January comes and it's like, oh, oh, I got to do this all again. It's exhausting. And as a result, I'm not exhausted this year. You can tell. Look at all the energy I have. This is wonderful. Yes. Do you think artists in general are more flexible or adaptable to change? Because I keep hearing in a lot of the interviews that I've done, I keep hearing the word pivot. Well, it's it's all up to the individual. You know, out of respect, uh, I can't I can't speak for other artists. You know, I can't speak for 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 your for your art or how you create it or uh, if you have to pivot. I mean, that's a basketball term, isn't it? Pivoting? I don't know, but I've been hearing it a lot in yeah. different interviews and in some of the interviews. And it, it pivot seems to I've be had a popular it. word. You know what? I would say that any terminology that has to do with the world has nothing to do with artists. You know, we make it up as we go along. We always have. Are you ta- kidding me? Pivoting? An artist pivoting? An artist pivots probably about 25, 30 times a day. So what what's the difference i think that hopefully some great art comes out of this hopefully some great new thoughts come out of this hopefully i get to write my second book and you know hopefully i get better as a writer hopefully i get better as a visual artist hopefully i get better as a songwriter because at 61 i'm looking that i hope to have 20 more years to get good at this you just brought up a really good point that i'm going to jump to Um, And part of that is a new renaissance in music. And the beginning of that is over the lab during the pandemic, especially in 2020, sales of musical instruments online skyrocketed Mm -hmm. to the point where musicians couldn't get what they needed for their Mm -hmm. home studios or whatever. The other thing was, is that I was talking to a lot of musicians who were, oh, my God, I used to play the guitar 20 years ago. I'm a drummer. I can play, you know, Mm -hmm. pulling out the guitar, pulling out the cello, whatever other instrument they used to play and starting to get back to, if you want to call it their roots, what really got them, what Mm -hmm. really pulled them into what they're doing today. So it got me thinking, if you've got a drummer playing the piano and a pianist playing the bass, et cetera, Mm -hmm. so totally different instruments, different feel, different sound, different way, different instrument to create on. Do you think there might be a new renaissance in music, something different that will come out of this? Yeah, well, I, th- I think we're due. I think we're due uh, for something that is brought to us from youth. Same youth that brought us rock and roll, punk rock, in hip-hop, and I would say we're due because um, without somebody ripping it all down and rewriting the rules or making their own rules, 
uh, were basically all swimming around the same fishbowl. I mean, I, I personally, I can't stop listening to D'Angelo. I, I don't know where I'm at. A renaissance in music. Well, I, I mean, guess. if you look at what happened with, and I was talking to John earlier about, you know, we went through the whole thing of the Toronto sound developing mm -hmm. in the late 40s, 50s, and 60s. Yeah. And then you had the 60s with Yorkville. Mm -hmm. And and all of the artists that came out of Yorkville, Kensington yeah. Market, we had the jazz and blues stream, um, uh, venues. Oh my God! On, yes. on I mean, it was such a happening place. It was. And I unfortunately was just a tiny bit too young Me to too. experience a lot of it. I came in on the fringe, um, real fringe, fringe, but. If you look at all of that, there was such a freedom of expression and people exchanging ideas. And from what I experienced on the fringe, the Eagles were put at the door. People were mentoring and teaching each other. There was just a whole new music constantly coming out. And I, with nostalgia being what it is today on, on Facebook and all the social media stuff, mm. everybody seems to want to go back to that. Oh, yeah, I know. And it's it's like it was an ambiance. It was a feel. It was a – and when I talk about the renaissance of music, I'm wondering if something like that may – will we be lucky enough to think that maybe something like that might come out of it? People Good. are creating on different instruments. They're starting to uh, reach out to other musicians that they normally wouldn't reach out to, wouldn't mm -hmm. have the time to. Well, I, uh, that's a very uh, beautiful and hopeful thought. But I, I don't know. Um, you know, I told you that I... Now, it's, I, don't, I think I'm painting myself in, improperly when I say I don't like people. I do like people, <laughs> but I don't necessarily have to hang around with them, no. you know. And when it comes to being a guy from Hamilton, I never hung out with the Toronto scene. I had one had nothing to do with that, you know, through punk rock, through junk house. We had nothing to do with the Toronto. We had friends that were musicians in Toronto. We had Real Statics and Sarah Craig and the Bare Naked Ladies and, the, you know, there's all kinds of fellow musicians that we were friends with, but we didn't hang out with them. We weren't into a scene. And I don't really, I think that it's it's so interesting that you brought up the Toronto sound. That's uh, It's so glorious, you know, and it's something that Colin Linden speaks with, uh, speaks about in such loving tones and with such such eloquence. But the fact is, is that Toronto seems to have been chasing a scene to answer a lot of the questions to their problems, when in fact we should be looking inward as individuals. Yorkville was was incredible. My my ex manager owned the riverboat. He was there for it all. Yeah, well, Jane used to, Jane, who ran, who was publicist for Hughes Absolutely. Room, Riverboat for uh, years. Same thing. Yeah. Jane, yeah. Jane Harbour. Yeah. Joanne Smale. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, these are these are the people that uh, were there. They were at ground zero for that. When I came along, I mean, I wasn't trying, I wasn't trying to find a scene to attach myself so that we could recreate that, you know? I mean, it's just, that, that's kind of silliness. Um, these scenes, you know, the Hawks... Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks, Young Street. Mm -hmm. It just happened. It just it's happened. organic, as they call it. CBGBs just happened. The Horseshoe just happened. And if you were lucky enough to be there, 
uh, great. If not, you should be really happy to be in the Cameron House, you know, or or uh, the Dakota. I don't think Dakota's uh, Dakota closed its doors. Yeah. Yeah, so we so we're losing some venues, but there'll be another venue. I mean, uh, maybe maybe you like the uh, the fish tacos there, or you know maybe the uh, the temperature of the beer was right. But I mean, that's uh, what are you going to attach yourself to a fish taco and to to uh, find your way to the next uh, song you're going to write? Just ridiculous. So you know what? Here's my here's my thing. Uh, just stand as an individual. Stand and fall as an individual and do not attach yourself to any fish tacos, no matter what decade it came out of. You know what? You're an artist or you're trying to be an artist. So so just stand tall. Be, be your on your own. You've just listened to a conversation I had with Tom Wilson, February 12th, 2021. This interview was recorded at Soundhouse Studio, located on Eastern Avenue in Toronto, Canada. Owned by producer-engineer John Jameson, John is also my co-editor and mixer for all the interviews we record at Soundhouse. He makes us all sound good, and me sound like I know what I'm doing. With respect for the times we live in right now, all appropriate safety measures are taken during any in-person interview recorded at Soundhouse. Many thanks go to Eddie and Quincy Bullen and Paul DeLong for writing and performing the fantastic theme music for the show. And to all of you who have tuned in to listen to what these artists have to say, thank you for taking the time and inviting us into your cars, offices, and homes. I am Pat Blythe. You're listening to Love the Music. Have a great day and a wonderful evening.